0: And as they are going, if you would join me in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, and I will begin reading in verse 52. Verse 52, Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, You have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Please join me in prayer. Our great God in heaven, we are here this morning to celebrate what your Son has accomplished on our behalf. This week is a week of memorial of all the benevolence that you have poured out of your heart to your people. We gather this week to give thanks to you, for all the temporal and the physical provisions that you have given to us to, su- to sustain life. <clears throat> but this morning, how appropriate that we consider the true food and the true drink that you have given to us that we might live forever. And that food and drink is found in your Son, Jesus Christ. It is for this purpose that we are looking at your word this morning. The word of the living God that it was given to us living flesh and living drink that we might live forever. I pray this morning as we study together that your word will become alive to us as we, as we listen, as we read, and as we meditate on the things before us. I pray that you'll give me the ability to speak them this morning. But I pray also that by your good grace and the power of your spirit, that you will give to our hearts the ability to learn and to know of you and to respond in worship. Pray for the sanctification of your church this morning as we sit under the authority of your word and under the moving and the working of your spirit today. And we pray this in Christ's name. <laughs> Amen. Um, in the news, the past couple of weeks, I have been struck by... a uh, a popular singer, and I don't know this person, and I'm not familiar with rap music anyway, but apparently this fellow has come to faith in Christ. At least he's making some sort of an open profession of faith in Christ, and if that is a genuine profession, we rejoice with him. But as is so typical, when a popular person makes some sort of profession, they're immediately thrown into the spotlight and onto the stage. And I was reading this week how this particular person was put on the stage of Joel Olstein's church, which is a church that does not, in our view, preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, though it seems to come under the heading of Christianity in our world today. And I want you to note a verse that I did not read this morning in our reading, verse 59, where all of the things that Jesus was teaching here was taking place in the synagogue. That would be like our modern church today because the synagogue in the time of Christ was the place where the Jewish people would gather. They would read the Old Testament scripture. Somebody would stand and often give an explanation of the scripture. And there would be an open discussion of the things of God in the context of the Jewish faith. That synagogue is very much like the churches of our day, I would say even the modern church today, because we see what's taking place here in the synagogue in Capernaum. There was a discussion and a debate going on about the person of Christ and the work of Christ, and, <clears throat> and those two things we're going to discuss in just a little bit. But you will note that what's taking place in this discussion is an objection to Christ. An objection to His substitutionary atonement is what He accomplished on the cross in His flesh and His blood. And like so many synagogues in our country today, church gatherings, there's all sorts of different ideas being thrown around about Jesus or Christianity or salvation. And oftentimes we hear nothing but heresy in those churches and from those pulpits. This is the context of this gathering of people that have gathered before Jesus Christ and are confronting Him. Now, as I said last week, we don't really know that all of this conversation in John chapter 6 happened in the synagogue. When Jesus landed on the shores of Capernaum and the crowd that Jesus had fed on the hillside, the loaves and the fish, that he miraculously produced for them to eat. They had followed him to Capernaum. And there was a discussion that followed after that. When they landed in Capernaum, they pursued Jesus. They found him. And this discussion of bread erupted. But at some point, this discussion between these Galileans and Jesus ended up in in the, the synagogue in Capernaum. When that happened, we're not told. But I tend to think... When John, the apostle in verse 41, mentions the Jews, it's always in the context of those Jewish people that opposed Christ, confronted Christ, and challenged Christ. It may very well be that that time in verse 51 is when they had moved toward the synagogue. At the very least, when we get down to verse 52, and the Jews are now arguing with one another, Very likely, they are in the synagogue at this point, as it says in verse 59. At any rate, this would have been the common meeting place for these kinds of discussions. But I've noted before that as this discussion has unfolded, the opposition, the rejection of Christ has intensified. We go from grumbling back in verse 41 a disapproval of what Christ was saying to now a full-blown argument in 52. Back in verse 35 to verse 40, we consider Jesus proclaiming himself as the bread of life. And then in verse 41 to 51, Jesus declares openly, I am the bread of life that came down out of heaven, declaring his divine origin, his divine nature. And this intensified the opposition among the Jews. To the point that as Jesus says in verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. Now the Jews are arguing about that. Now they're truly rejecting and opposing what Jesus Christ is declaring. And it brings us to our text this morning where Jesus emphasizes even stronger tones that he is the bread sent by God that is to be eaten. It is to be consumed. Jesus emphasizes what he's been saying in the past words more strongly than he had before, that he is the bread of life is to be taken in, partaken by men. In school history classes, and many of you probably can remember as I do, so very well in history, world history, the exploration of the new world, men like Christopher Columbus And those men that traveled across the ocean into the unknown. And those explorers were often seeking new lands to be claimed for the crown, for the king or the queen. Others were seeking gold and riches and fortune. Some were seeking a faster sailing route to the Indies. And then there were those that were in search of the fountain of youth in hopes of living forever. And the most famous of those is probably Ponce de Leon. Explored what we now know as Florida. But a common factor with many of these ancient explorers is that very often they were willing to take great risk and go to great expense, sometimes going into great debt to search for the mystical and the uncertain. And our history books often portray these adventures as bold and daring and brave men, and I believe that they were, to some degree, brave and bold and daring. But the point is that very often they sacrifice (coughs) riches and their very lives for what was unknown to them. And yet our text reveals to us that the God of creation has already extended the invitation to partake freely of the bread that he has brought to us. We don't have to go on to an exploration. He's brought it to humanity. He's brought it to our world. And this flesh and blood in his son is what he offers that we might have eternal life, to live forever. So the passage before us this morning is filled with statements and declarations that we've heard before in our study of John chapter 6. But here they are again. And you will notice at once that in repeating these words, he's becoming more graphic to his audience. Jesus is becoming more almost offensive to the Jewish community that he's addressing. The emphasis of our study this morning will be in the call by Jesus Christ to come and eat or partake of his flesh and to drink of his blood. And if Jesus had aroused the concern of these Jews up to this point, Surely the language that he uses here in verses 53 to verse 58 is going to send them even further into turmoil. As you know, I live in Conway, and so generally, getting here to the office from my home, I most often travel across Fur Island. And you know as well as I do that many people from the south, from the city, come up to our valley to see the spectacle of whatever's going on up here, whether it's tulips, or this time of year, it's a bunch of white birds. And I don't know why those white birds captivate people so intensely, but we have two groups out in those fields. One group is in camouflage. And you know what they're there to do? They're looking for a nice goose dinner. But there's another large following that stands out in the fields and they're parked all along the side of the road with cameras that look like bazookas with these lens. So they can get up and personal and close to the waterfowl that we have up here. Well, I saw something Saturday I've never seen before. It was three people, totally in white suits, with white hoods, and they were out there in the middle of the birds one was kneeling the other was standing and there was another one taking pictures but they're completely encased in white you know what they've done they become one with the birds and i can just imagine the experience that they're having inside of their hoods thinking oh now look we're so exci- we're so close we can touch them they're communing with us those birds and us as if we're the same And of course, I say the same thing that I say at tulip season, just buy a postcard and stay home. But I'm not very compassionate in that, I guess. When it comes to presenting the things of Christ to an unbelieving world, I think it's generally true that we strived to drape ourselves in that white costume and to become winsome and as reasonable as possible as we present the gospel of Jesus Christ to an unsaved world. We want them to understand. We want them to to see the hope that we have in the gospel. And we want the gospel to be as attractive as possible to those that we are preaching it to without robbing it of its truth and its power. And oftentimes, this is the exception that we have to other churches or other evangelistic approaches. They want to become so like the world that they rob the gospel of its truth and power. We don't want that. And I know your hearts, you don't want that in sharing Christ with those in your community. That at the same time, we want the gospel to be attractive. We want it to sound reasonable, something that will stir their hearts and they will desire it as well. In this discussion that Jesus has with these Jews, Jesus was having to deal with the harder things of the gospel that were contrary to the established beliefs of these Jews. These were religious people that embraced the law given to them by God himself. And though they believed that they were faithful to that law, they had missed the point. Of the law altogether. They could not keep the law. Even with their very best of efforts. And if they could not keep the law. Then the blood of animals was to provide. A substitute atonement. To cover the sinful failures of God's people. And here they gather in front of Jesus. In the synagogue in Capernaum. Debating with Jesus about that substitutionary atonement. There they stand as those that believe they are the faithful keepers of the law, and therefore, because of their keeping of the law, they're entitled to the kingdom of heaven. And even the the festivals and the sacrifices and the Passover season that they were now celebrating at this time didn't seem to make sense to them that that blood offering in the sacrifices, the Passover celebration, was meant to tell the people of Israel, you can't keep the laws of God. And if you can't keep the laws of God, you are dead to God. The law of Moses should have led this people to see the promised Messiah. Messiah. It should have made them understand their need for a Savior in that Messiah. And the blood sacrifices, the ceremonies, the festivals, and the Passover, all of that should have sent them to Jesus as the one speaking now to them about the sacrifice that they needed. But what stood so strongly in contrast In the minds of these Jews was their long-held tradition of righteous works. We have done this, and therefore we are in good standing with God. It stood in contrast over and against what Jesus was preaching. Believe in me that you might have eternal life. Jesus had presented himself as the bread sent by God that would provide eternal life for his people. By laying hold of eternal life, Jesus is saying this is not a matter of performing good works or keeping the law. Jesus taught that it was by faith in him that provided this life eternal. Note verse 47. And he puts this in the language of eating the bread which represents his flesh. Verse 50. And as Jesus builds on this understanding of sinners, Partaking in his flesh, the Jews in the Galilean crowd erupt into arguing with one another. We saw in our last study how the discontent in this gathering had been escalating into grumbling. Now they're openly debating with each other the words of Jesus. And of note to us, knowing that this crowd was becoming more offended by the words of Christ, Jesus does not water down his language He doesn't soften the extremity of his words. In fact, Jesus seems to make his words more provocative, causing a division to occur as we read in verse 52. And so Jesus, seeing this argument, he speaks these words into this arguing, debating crowd. Verse 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. How's that for diffusing a hostile crowd? How's that for witnessing the gospel in a winsome way? You see, the drama in these words was intended to shake up the thinking of the Jews, that in their own practice of the Jewish religion, notice the words 53 again, they were dead, To God, you have no life in yourselves. And what better way to rattle the wrongful thinking of a crowd of Jews than to tell them you got to eat flesh and drink blood. That'll get their attention to be sure. And this was the approach that Jesus used to address the debate taking place within the synagogue on account of his testimony. By today's evangelistic standards, this Approach isn't likely to win the crowd over, nor did it this crowd. And you can see that in verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, This is too difficult. We're done with this guy. And this highlights again that while our study has largely been involving those who are hostile to Christ, we have to know that some within this gathering, some within this Galilean crowd, were either true disciples of Christ, or they were soon to be true disciples, being drawn to Jesus by the Father, just as He said He would do. Now, the arguers here may have been only those who were opposed to Jesus, but some perhaps were being drawn to Him at this point. And it's passages like this that remind us of the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 10, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. As we approach the Christmas season, one of the themes of the birth of the Savior is the peace that He brought to our world. And Matthew 10 seems to stand in sharp contradiction to the very mission of Christ. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. The peace of Messiah is a peace Between the God of heaven and those who are found in His Son, Jesus Christ. God sent His Son to be the Savior to His people. And those who are drawn to the Son by God the Father, they enjoy this salvation that affords to them, affords to us as believers, eternal peace with God. Because His Son, Jesus Christ, has fully reconciled such persons to God. This Jesus did as He bore their sins on the cross. They've received Jesus Christ as their Savior, having been drawn to Him by God through faith. And every person who has trusted Jesus Christ in repentance and faith enters into a peaceful relationship with God that will extend from that moment of faith on into eternal glory. Eternal life means eternal peace with God. It means eternal favor and blessing and glory In the presence of God the Father, Jesus Christ did come into this world to bring this peace to his people. But there is another matter of peace that must now be considered. Because those who reject Jesus Christ as the bread of life sent by God have set themselves in hostility against the Father who gave to this world his Son as the giver of life, the bread of life. In that they refuse to partake of the bread sent by God. They stand opposed to Christ. And those who reject the Savior will face the full condemnation of God the Father on account of their sins. And this is what Jesus refers to when he said, I did not come to bring peace, but I brought a sword. He means that there can be no peace Between mankind and God, apart from the bread sent by God. Those who do not partake of this bread set themselves in opposition to God, and they remain under the eternal judgment that has come against all men in their sins. As proclaimers of Christ, this is going to be our opposition as well. As we go out into the world, we need to understand that we go out to divide. We will not make unity with this world. We will divide with the sword of the gospel. We will divide apart those that reject Christ forever and for eternity. But there is a peace that we also bring, isn't there? For those that would come to Christ by faith, they enter into that peaceful relationship, that eternal relationship with God the Father that we also enjoy. As we're looking at verse 52, it is a reminder that this call to come eat is a call that will divide. And it's a call that we have been commissioned to proclaim in the world before us. The conflict that arose within this this Capernaum synagogue gives testimony to the sword of the gospel because it's only acceptable means of salvation that God has provided for men. The gospel of Christ divides by the very same question that was debated by these Jews. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? How can Jesus Christ in his humanity give us life? How can eating of him accomplish any good thing? It is another way of questioning that Jesus Christ can provide eternal life through his sacrifice and death. Herein lies the divide. Is Jesus Christ truly the bread of life? Is he truly sent of God? And this was the question. These were the questions that these Jews were grappling with. And sadly, the majority of them rejected Christ. They stood in opposition to what he declared himself to be and what he came to do. And this brings us then to the necessity of eating of this bread. And this is where in verse 15, 53 the language of Christ intensifies he's restating the message that he's declared before in the previous passage but he's taking this this call of uh, to sinners and he's declaring it even more profoundly once again Jesus declares salvation in himself both from a positive and a negative point of view You see the negative in verse 53 and the positive in verse 54. And both of these fall under the emphasis of a fundamental truth that is to be embraced as Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. In other words, Christ is saying, pay attention to me now. I'm declaring a truth that you must know. You cannot survive apart from this. Truly, truly, I say to you unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you are dead to God. There is no life in you. This is a suitable preface to these two verses. Truly, truly, I say to you, because the shocking implications of of the words of Christ or cannibalism, to be sure, and that would have stirred an even greater struggle of faith for these Jews. It was highly offensive to Jews to think of eating human flesh, especially the drinking of blood. You remember the dietary practices of the Old Testament law. You couldn't even eat meat unless the blood was thoroughly drained out. I want you to turn to Leviticus chapter 17. Because this is one of those dietary restrictions where the implications of blood in the flesh, begin to come out. And the importance of that blood being the atonement for our souls. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 10 and 11. Any man from the house of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them who eats any blood, I, God, will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. You see, there's both a restriction here. Don't touch the blood. But there is a hope of salvation as well, because God has given that blood on the altar the sacrifice of animals to make atonement for their souls. So though this passage warns against consuming blood, what this directive, this Old Testament directive alludes to is the sacrificial system which provided for the atonement of the souls of men on account of their sins. But the point is also made that the blood represents life within the flesh of the animal sacrifice. And when the blood was spilled out, The life of the animal was given in atonement for the souls of men. Israel was strictly warned against consuming blood because that was the life of the animal. The blood was sacred in this sense because life is sacred in that it reflects the image of God. Remember, it's God that created. He breathed life into the nostrils of that which he created. God is life. And the blood is the substance of the life of the flesh that he created. All of this was to point to the hearts and minds of the listener that the blood sacrifice that Jesus Christ would make for the atonement of man's sins on the cross would be the only sacrifice that men could depend on. Jesus came in a body of flesh and in his humanity he represented his people on the cross as our sins were placed on Christ who would make full payment to God for those sins in the spilling out of his blood. And Jesus fully understood the symbolism of the animal sacrifices. He understood the laws forbidding blood consumption, to say nothing of the laws against eating human flesh. So his provocative words were intended to awaken the reality of the sacrifice that he must make for sinners. But the point that he vividly makes in verse 53 is that if his flesh and blood is not consumed, no man will have life in himself. And this makes a distinction, doesn't it, between what Jesus is saying in John 6 and what Moses declared in the Old Testament. Because the blood sacrifice, the spilling out of animal bloods was for men that were alive physically. But Jesus declaring here, unless you take flesh and blood from me, you remain dead. Jesus is speaking to spiritual corpses. Spiritually speaking, all men are already dead to God. They need life. And simple, thoughtful reflection by these Jews on the words of Christ would have established immediately that Jesus was talking in a spiritual sense because there the arguers were standing right in front of Jesus, very much physically alive. So they had to know, based on what Jesus said in verse 53, ah, now he's talking spiritually. That before God, he's claiming we're spiritually dead to God because he can't be speaking of the physical. Because here we are alive and arguing in front of him as living beings. So his words are clearly in the context of the spirit, spiritual life. You see that in verse 63. It is the spirit, Jesus said, who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. And this crowd should have understood this. I believe also that Jesus gives reference to his own physical flesh as a sacrifice For the souls of men, as he describes himself as the son of man, a reference to his birth into humanity. He had already told this people, I am the bread that is sent from heaven. I am from God. I come with divine origin, divine nature. Now he's declaring himself in verse 53 to be the son of man, born of a woman. In other words, he became one of us. The point that these Jews were foolish to miss is that the Son of God had just declared all of them to be spiritually dead. There's the negative. Unless you partake, you're going to remain dead. And then he declares the positive in verse 54. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has life, and I will raise him up on the last day, repeating what Jesus has already declared to them. Now that Jesus declares the promise that the one who eats of his flesh and of his blood and they have eternal life, we understand this discussion now is a discussion about faith. It's not about literally, physically eating, is it? Go back to verse 47. He who believes has eternal life. Compare it to verse 54. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. What then does eating and drinking mean? It means faith. It means believing. Augustine wrote, Believe, and you have eaten. Believe, and you have eaten. The picture of eating drinking speaks of faith in Christ. And it speaks in a most profound way to eat and drink is to willingly accept food out of the necessity to maintain life. In this case, out of the necessity to bring life to that which was dead. As we eat, as we drink, those elements enter the body and become part of our physical being. We know that. Every time we sit down at the table and we take food and drink into our body, it goes down into our organs, and those organs were designed by God to put those nutrients into our blood, which nourishes our flesh. We are literally what we eat. That's exactly what Jesus is saying in a spiritual sense. You take me in. and You become alive because I am life. And Jesus makes this point in verse 55 in this way. Once you've eaten of me, you've taken true food and true drink. Nothing can provide eternal life but the Son of Man. It is the spiritual food that all men desperately need. It's necessity of life. But we also understand that Jesus is not describing merely faith in him as a person, no matter how divine his nature is. Because I would say to you what you already know, even Satan knows and believes that much. It is not merely a faith in Jesus as the Son of God that we're talking about here. The faith that brings us out of death and into life is faith in His flesh and blood being sacrificed on a cross as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of His people. He has come to us as the Son of Man. Scholars point out a very subtle difference between the eating in verse 53 and the eating in verse 54. In verse 53, the word eat is in the aorist tense. Which implies a single act done once for all. And this pictures the moment of faith. When that sinner first embraces Christ, and at that moment they pass out of death spiritually and into life eternally. This act of faith is one, done one time, and at that moment we're made alive to God. But then there's a change in verse 54. Because the word eat is now in the perfect tense, declaring that which is continuous, meaning that the believer who has partaken of true spiritual food will continue to feed on Christ. And this emphasizes that when we come to faith in Christ, we are now in Him. He continually nourishes, He continually supplies the life sustaining food that we need to continue to live in Christ and for Christ. His flesh, his blood, have not only atoned for our sins, but his spiritual vitality has now entered us. And this is the symbolism of his flesh as food. His blood as drink. My flesh, true food. My blood, true drink. Do you understand now what Christ means? We've taken it in and it continually nourishes. And this brings us to the effect eating his flesh and blood in verse 56 through verse 58. The effects of eating. As a result of this partaking of Christ through faith, Jesus continues this discussion. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. The word abide here in verse 56, if you have your new American, the word abide means to continue in or to remain. So to partake of Jesus Christ by faith is to enter into an eternal relationship, eternal fellowship with God. William Hendrickson translates that verse, verse 56, this way. Listen carefully. He who accepts, appropriates, and assimilates my vicarious sacrifice as the only ground of his salvation remains in me and I in him. He who accepts, appropriates, and assimilates Hendrickson is defining faith for us here. He who accepts, appropriates, assimilates my vicarious sacrifice as the only ground of his salvation remains in me and I remain in him. As we observe that this union is mutual in that Christ is now in the believer and the believer is in Christ, what Jesus is doing is describing faith to us. The Apostle Paul often wrote of our union with Christ as joining with or becoming part of the body of Christ. He is the head and every believer is now part of his body. At the same time that we become part of Christ by remaining in his body, his spirit comes to indwell the individual believer causing him, Christ, to remain in us. So we are forever made part of his body And he, by his spirit, is now made one with us. The description of eternal life would have been troubling to any one of these Jews who wanted to hold on to their present life of earning the kingdom of God by their own works of the law. Furthermore, what Jesus taught was that unless they find themselves in union with Jesus as the Son of God, they have no part with the Father They have no part with this future kingdom. You can see how offensive this gospel would have been to these Jews. The invitation to receive eternal life fully rested on one's faith in Jesus Christ as the only atoning sacrifice acceptable to God the Father. No longer it's about blood of animals. Jesus is putting aside the sacrificial system because he's declaring it is now all about my sacrifice you have no part with the Father. If you keep sacrificing pigeons and lambs to God, you are dead to God. You have no part with Him unless you partake of me. The invitation to receive eternal life fully rested on one's faith in Jesus Christ as the only sacrifice that God the Father would accept only those who partake of Christ will be raised up by him. Only then can any live forever with God in heaven. And to believe in Christ is to continually be in Christ. This mutual abiding depicts what one author calls the co-participatory union. You ought to write that down. The co-participatory union. Our life is now lived for Christ while at the same time being sovereignly directed by Christ. His spirit feeds and nourishes our new life in Christ, growing us to be more like him and less like being what we once were, enslaved and dead in our sins. In turn, we serve his purposes. We store up his treasures in heaven. We live in worship of him. We live in obedience to his commands. His purposes are now our purposes. His passions, his values, his truth. They're now ours. We're no longer our own. But as Paul said, we've been bought at a price. And therefore, we are to glorify God in our body. This is a new description. And I want us to listen to the words of Matthew Henry, who wrote of this so wonderfully. He said, by faith, we have a close and intimate union with Christ. He is in us, and we are now in him. Believers dwell in Christ as their stronghold or city of refuge. Christ dwells in them as the master of the house, to rule it and provide for it. Such is the union between Christ and believers that he shares in their griefs and they share in his graces and joys. He sups with them upon their bitter herbs and they with him upon his rich dainties. It is an inseparable union like that between the body and the digested food. Again, do you see the imagery of Christ? That his flesh, his food, his blood, is drink This mutual abiding between Christ and the believer follows the pattern, as Jesus says in verse 57, that is seen within the Godhead itself. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. Jesus, once again, describing his unity with God the Father. He is the living God, the living Father. And he has sent me to give life. I live in the Father. The Father lives in me. This is how it is between the believer and Jesus. This is what eternal life looks like based on a true faith that takes in the true food and the true drink. This mutual abiding is a picture of the unity of the Godhead. In obedience, the Son gives life to God's chosen people, the Father is living. He sent His Son into our world to live for Him, the Father, and for His purposes. And in turn, Jesus comes to us and imparts life through His sacrifice. The reason that these people are made alive in Christ is because they've eaten of Him. And a mutual union has been formed. Faith is then, and I hope we understand this clearly today. It's much more than a casual belief in Jesus or a mere affirmation of truth in the gospel. It is more than just a child saying, well, I believe what my mom and dad tell me. Faith is more than saying a prayer to receive Jesus when you were eight or ten years old, and you've lived the rest of your life for yourself. It isn't that. Too many people have have embraced this this easy, easy believism, and Jesus is shattering that notion here. True faith has taken Christ in. This is the picture of eating of Christ that we are to see. And the effect that this eating produces is that Jesus has now become spiritually part of the believer's life. And the believer is part of him. Things can never be the same once we've partaken of Christ. We once were spiritually dead And now we are alive in Christ and we continually feed on him that our lives would be nourished. Jesus affirms this dramatic distinction by repeating again to this Jewish gathering that he is the bread which came down out of heaven. And the food that he provides is not at all the same as the temporal manna that the fathers experienced in the wilderness. They ate the manna to be sure it's sustained life for the moment. But Jesus repeats again, in the end, they died. That manna didn't provide the life that they needed. The bread found in Christ, on the other hand, provides life eternal to those who eat of him. Clearly, this eternal life involves a future existence in glory. But Jesus has just shown that to partake of him by faith makes the believer alive at that present moment. If you are here as one that has partaken of the flesh and blood of Christ, you realize now you are alive. God sees you as a living spiritual being. And to be sure, that spiritual being will live forever in the presence and the glory of his majesty. But you're alive now because of him. The description of faith in terms of consuming the flesh and blood of Christ makes a vivid picture for us of the transforming work of God in drawing men to His Son. True believers have been taught by God, and they've learned of Christ by God. They've come to Christ because of the drawing of God to His Son, and they are made one with the Son because they partook by faith of his bloody and fleshly sacrifice on the cross. It's our hope that every one of us here this morning have been found to be partakers of the flesh of Christ and who have drunk freely of his blood in this sense. And if you are one of those, then you have now experienced what it means to abide in Christ and he in you. If you have not come into this kind of spiritual life with Christ, if a co-participatory existence with Christ has not characterized your idea of Christianity, then we would appeal to you to come to him now. Receive the food that he freely offers. Men may continue to explore life eternal, but Christ came to give it freely. And he offers it to us now. Would you reach out and take that food, that drink, that provides life everlasting? coming to the end of our study this morning, and you would think that given the condition of my throat, I'd have the good sense to make this a shorter message. But as we come to the end, it should always be our objective to be transformed by the Word of God that we've studied together, to find something practical here that we are to walk away with. So again, I've drawn three just kind of summary points that I want us to consider this morning as we end our time of worship around the Word of God First, knowing that it's God who must draw the sinner to his son. Believers learn from Jesus how to preach Jesus. We learn from Jesus how to preach his gospel. And this is one of the difficult parts of our study of John 6. We prefer not to make the gospel offensive. And observing how Jesus preached to this crowd of Jews... I'm convinced that we're not to go out the door and try to be as provocative as possible. That's not the lesson here. But Jesus does show us that for the hardened listener, the harder truth must be preached. These Jews were very religious. They were very devoted to a religious practice that they believed they were already secure in, in regard to the kingdom of God. But Jesus said, no, it's left you dead to God. There needed to be a harder message for these ones. And I know that in sharing Christ, sometimes there are those that come to us with a heart that is already softened. And we get the privilege of showing them the love and the mercy and the grace of God and they receive it in such a warm and a compassionate and tender way. But very often you and I go out into a world that wants to hold on to their ideas of religion or their own self-righteousness, or their own religious system, and they declare, no, that's not the truth. I know the truth. And sometimes the harder things have to be said. Most of those to whom we preach Christ may not be in that hardened position. But if anything, Jesus teaches us the importance of knowing those to whom we preach, as He did with Nicodemus, or the Samaritan woman, or even these hardened Jews know the one that we preach the gospel to. And Jesus teaches us that when we preach gospel truth, we preach a divisive message that may be offensive to some while being receptive to others. We are always at risk of dividing with the gospel. There will be those that are offended. There will be those that are objectors. And at times we divide the family. That's a hard one, isn't it? We divide friends. Friends that maybe we've known for years are going to say, I don't want to be your friend anymore. It divides co-workers. And sometimes it divides marriages. But the gospel is a sword. And it does that work. But when it does it effectively, and God is drawing that sinner to himself, do you realize what we've done We've been part of a peacemaking mission of Christ where a sinner has come to faith eternally in God through Jesus Christ. And we have part to that. It's good for us to learn from Jesus how to preach the gospel. Second, in a day that promotes many religions but objects to one gospel, the church must be bold to proclaim the atonement in the body of and the blood of Christ alone. We've got to be bold to proclaim the atonement in the body and blood of Christ alone. Unless men and women partake of him, they have no life in in themselves. That is a hard statement. But that's the reality of our mission field. When it comes to discussions of the gospel, not only is Jesus the Son of God being opposed to by most, but his atonement on the cross is opposed. And you can see these are the two questions that came to Jesus. Back in verse 42, they questioned who he was as the Son of God. They questioned his divine origin. And then in verse 52, another question comes up. Are you truly the bread of life? Questioning his atonement. These two points continue to be attacked and denied. The person of Christ and the atonement of Christ. Only on the divine nature of Christ and his substitutionary atonement on the cross can eternal salvation be found. Not only must the church carefully guard these truths, we have got to boldly preach them because there's no other way to find life except through that Jesus and the work that he did on the cross. This is where our confidence must be as a church that preaches the gospel. And then third. Faith in Jesus Christ means abiding in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ means abiding in Christ. I believe it is tragic that our American Christian culture has embraced a gospel that is easier and more believable. Our world around us, they clamor for a more user friendly gospel that doesn't interfere with the lives of men but allows men and women to live as they choose with the promise of a glorious hereafter. And that's how all too often the gospel is presented and how too many people receive the gospel and they continue to live for themselves with the idea, well, I accepted Jesus as my savior, so the glorious hereafter belongs to me, but I can live as I choose now. All too often a gospel is being preached that saves no one because it is not preaching what men are saved from and it is not preaching what men are saved to. We are saved out of hell. The judgment of God on account of our sins. But we're being saved to something as well. And that's where the abiding in Christ comes in. We are being saved to be like Christ. To be transformed into likeness of Christ. That He will come and be with us. And we're now part of him. There are far too many people that want to embrace the gospel, but they want to continue to live in adultery or fornication or live for the lusts and the pleasures of this world or live for greed and jealousy and the riches of this world. And oh, by the way, when I die, I'm going to go be with Jesus. Is that now your understanding of the gospel? When Jesus says to eat of me and to drink of me causes you to abide in me, and I will abide in you. Nothing can be the same. And if you're living for yourself now, what makes you think you're abiding in Christ or he's abiding in you? Any faith in Christ that does not want to be like Christ is not true faith in Christ at all. To eat and drink of him, as our text shows, describes the person that has ceased to be what he once was. And now he's become one who abides with Christ and Christ with him. This is what it means to live. To live because of Christ. It is because of his sacrifice and death on a cross for the sins of mankind that believers are made alive in him. This is the salvation that God draws men to. In Christ. True faith that is worked by God, remember, takes away the old heart of stone, prevents a new, presents a new heart of flesh, a heart that loves his son, that desires to abide with his son, to be like his son, to obey his son, to serve his son, to serve his son's people, the church. And if this is not the experience of gospel salvation that we understand today, today, We have understood falsely and we are still dead to God in our sins. The life that God offers in his son is full, it's vibrant, and it has the character of God's son. Life in Christ begins now by faith. It extends into eternity with a view of eternity and progressively experiences eternal glory with Christ in the here and now. Just as Jesus lived because of the Father, so the believer lives because of Christ. Is this your testimony this morning? Because if it is, you can have the assurance that you have partaken of Christ, and he's now made you alive. He's now come to abide with you, and you abide with him. If your view of the gospel has been any less than that, again, I appeal to you. Look to the Savior. Look to what he provided on the cross. Look to what he intended to do in saving you out of that spiritual death and making you alive. What does it look like to be alive in Jesus? We see it here in John chapter 6. We hope and pray that your testimony this morning, if it is not, please don't hesitate to speak to one of us at the end of the service. If we can take just a few moments and pray with you, And show you the Savior. And walk you through what faith truly is. That would be our pleasure this morning. Our privilege. Let's close in Christ now. Father in heaven, thank you for being a God that loves sinners. God full of mercy and grace. A God that is powerful and effective to save. And the scripture tells us that your arm is never too short or too weak to draw sinners to yourself. You're a saving God. The Lord truly is my salvation. And we praise you, worship you for being a savior. We thank you for your son in his holiness, in his humanity, in his divinity. That by his bloody sacrifice, he affords to dead people life through his flesh, through his blood on the cross. We praise you for our saviour. We praise you and worship even the Spirit of Christ, who is the one that comes and awakens us, breathes new life into us, that we might believe and be saved. I pray for any here this morning, Father, that are yet without Christ, that you would move in that heart this morning. For those of us that are here in Christ, that you will fill us with the joy and the vitality and the fullness of what it means to abide your son, Jesus. And we pray this all in his name. Amen.